conversation about legal issues that matter to you. Understanding the culture tells you something about how the society develops its understanding of law. It seems like they're protecting our right to privacy with cell phones. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. Pam, we haven't been on the air for a while, and like everybody else, I think we've been glued to the election news for what seems to be forever. Yeah, I mean, you you know, usually we have an election, presidential election, uh, on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and then the election goes away. I mean, the election gets called, we know who's won, we wait a couple of months, we have an inauguration, uh, and we go on. And of course, this year has been nothing like that. Uh, the election season started off uh, with uh, two things that I think are really kind of distinctive in our history. One is COVID, uh, which changed in fundamental ways the way Americans vote. And we'll be talking about that in a moment. And then the second is Donald Trump. And I'm not sure in some ways which of these is the worst disease for the election system itself. So um, with us today, uh, as, as is often the case when we talk about elections, is our colleague, Nate Persley. Nate is the McClatchy professor at the law school. Uh, and in addition to being a law school professor and a professor uh, by courtesy in the communication department and in political science, he's also been the director co-director with Charles Stewart at MIT of the Stanford-MIT Healthy Elections uh, Project. And I guess we wouldn't exactly say in some ways that this was the healthiest election, but in others, it really was interesting. So thanks, Nate, for being with us today. Thanks for having me back. And and we have one other expert uh, on today, Pam, and that's you, because as our listeners know, you're one of the pioneers in election law, and you've been... Uh, involved in a lot of election protection litigation. So uh, our listeners hope to hear from Nate and you to tell us what went right and what went wrong in the last two months. Yeah, so Nate, why don't we start with how the election ran as an election? That is leaving aside who the candidates were and what the issues were, how did this election run? Well, it's become fashionable to say in the period after the election that this was the most secure election in American history, to quote Chris Krebs, who was the head of uh, the, so the cyber agency. Uh, it was also the, an election with the highest rate of participation in well over 100 years. So we had 159 million people casting ballots against great odds because there were obstacles that were put in their way this time just because of the pandemic that had never existed uh, in a, an election really in the United States, certainly not since the uh, 1918 influenza epidemic. And so there were incredible challenges to pulling off this election and the local election and state election officials did an incredible job. And there were no noticeable problems uh, despite what's been litigated and, and de declared in the post-election period. 
Um, whether you're looking for dysfunctions in the absentee mail balloting process or in uh, polling places, you didn't see very long lines on election day. You had some in the early voting period. You didn't see large numbers of people who were disenfranchised because of the machinery. You didn't see uh, major breakdowns in the technology or a cyber attack, which many of us were worried about. Uh, so in all of those ways that we measure election performance, this was not just a kind of barely functioning election. This was a better functioning election than any in recent memory. Uh, and it's really due to the incredible work of these local election officials. It's kind of striking because, of course, if you look back to the spring and the primary elections, there were some real disasters there. I mean, you know, think about Wisconsin in April, a total disaster of an election. There was a question as to whether we could actually pull the election off, right? Not that whether it would be, you know, rickety, and, but whether we could even hold the election. Because as you're saying in, in Wisconsin, as well as other states that ended up delaying their primaries, um, the, it wasn't clear that they had the people, places, and things that they needed in order to run an election. There was inc this incredible shortage of poll workers. Um, there was a loss of polling places because places like senior living facilities and some schools were taken out of commission because of the pandemic. And there were shortages of PPE and everything else that we you know, saw outside the election realm that were also plaguing the election. So at, if you go back to March, um, um, there was real question as to whether we could pull off the election. And then in the succeeding seven months, they were able to put it all together. And, and Nate, I know you are one of the people working on it. So uh, on behalf of everyone else, I want to thank you for, for working on that and for, for your contribution, along, as you say, with the contribution of tens of thousands uh, of election workers across the country. Well, that's right. At the Healthy Elections Project, what we tried to do was to work with these local election officials and with the applicable sort of NGOs that work in this area um, and funders uh, to try to get the basic architecture and infrastructure of the election system up and running. Um, and, you know, we played a small part in that. There were sort of a large civil society effort uh, that uh, was underway. Um, everything from poll worker recruitment and training through organizations like Power of the Polls to, um, you know, training of, of election officials with Stanford Design School uh, really did some incredible work in providing training materials. And then um, just in, in the massive sort of infrastructural changes that were necessary to pull off vote by mail on the scale that we saw this year. So roughly half of those 159 million people ended up voting by uh, mail or some other, you know, whether, whether it was by unit, um, the postal service or through some other method, um, they were, you had twice as many people voting by mail as you had historically in previous elections. And, you know, in addition to vote by mail, there were also a lot of other innovations. I mean, I think of Harris County as one of the most interesting ones with the 24 hour drive up, drop off your ballot um, uh, uh, program. Um, you know, Austin, Texas had what, 95% turnout rate mm -hmm. among eligible voters. I mean, it, you know, so there were some, there, there, there were some, there were some real bright spots. Um, I mean, one of the things we still realize is that there were a lot of people who find it difficult to vote um, and uh, the other thing was there was a huge amount of litigation, which at the end of the day um, resulted in a couple of very important changes. Um, but it's not clear that those changes actually affected the outcome of the election, as opposed to the number of people uh, who could participate. 
Well, a lot of the pre-election litigation was really trying just to get the rules in place so that everybody knew which votes were going to be counted under what conditions. And so, uh, you know, the, the different interest groups and the Democrats in particular were trying to make sure that any any ballot that was mailed at the time, you know, by the close of polls in certain states would count. They got won some of those cases, lost some others. Um, some other types of, uh, you know, uh, litigation to try to make sure ballots wouldn't be disqualified and people could correct errors in ballots. And all that was very important. will have some long lasting effects. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Nate personally about the election 2020. Joe? You know, Nate, I'm thinking that not only did the election go well in terms of collecting the ballots, but I remember beforehand when we had you on the show and Pam was on the show, one of the things we worried about, it's going to be a nightmare counting them. It could be weeks and weeks. We had an unprecedented number of uh, mail-in ballots. And what we found is that the election officials really worked tirelessly to make any realistic uh, deadlines of letting us know when these were counted. And uh, they all seem to get counted pretty quickly. And afterwards, the election officials, Republican or Democrat, seem to be ready to defend the legitimacy of what they did so that for the first few days, it seemed like this was kind of a dream election a little bit with one looming exception. <laughs> well, so you had um, what we expected, which is you had this um, uh, red mirage followed by a blue shift uh, in, in the voting, right? Because the, um, the mail-in ballots were more dis, you know, sort of disproportionately democratic uh, and the same day uh, vote was disproportionately um, Republican. You actually had a blue mirage followed by a red mirage followed by a blue shift in some places because some of the absentee ballots in places like Florida were counted early. But, but you're right, which is by Saturday. So you're talking about, I mean, basically by Thursday night but, and, and, and Friday morning, it was clear that Joe Biden had won. Um, uh, but once the news organizations called it on Saturday, then it was made clear. Um, and, you know, it did, it still was the case that, you know, more than 10 million ballots maybe still were made to be counted, but a lot of them were in places like uh, California and New York. So it didn't, didn't really make a difference. But in the battleground states, we pretty much knew by three days, four days after the election that Joe Biden had won. And that's when we saw this huge upsurge of litigation. And I think one of the things that's probably interest, interesting and important for our listeners to understand is that the allegations that were made in court were very different than the allegations that were made in the press. And I think this is in part because in court, the people who are making the allegations, the lawyers actually have to put their good name behind the allegations. Um, and so, you know, throughout this process that we've seen over the last month, last two months now, I mean, it's just been an unbelievably long period of time. Um, one of the things that we've, we've seen is that for all of the claims by President Trump that there was election fraud, that's not what his lawyers have been arguing about. Right. I mean, there were um, several cases in which they would allege out of court that dead people voted or 
people under the age of 18 voted or that uh, people out of state um, uh, illegally voted or that there were machine breakdowns and the like. But when push came to shove and there was potentially sanctionable uh, behavior on the line, then no, they weren't, they weren't willing to do that. Now, there are times when they did make these kind of hand-waving arguments in court, right, at that, that very high level of generality, and they were, as expected, smacked down by both Republican appointees and Democratic appointees because you can't just allege that there was massive fraud if you don't have actual evidence of it. And so the court cases are consistent with one story of a very successful election or a bipartisanly successful election, because what we saw after the election is election officials, Democratic and Republican defended the election, and we saw courts, Republican and Democratic judges, ruling as one, rejecting, if I'm not Correct. Did they reject every single challenge? I think they're one of the 65 they didn't reject. But it was, was not just on how close you can observe the ballot counting in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. Yeah. So. But there were there were 65 lawsuits and 64 of them basically were just dismissed. Um, and in fact, Judge Boesberg in uh, the federal district court in Washington has referred the lawyers for sanctions for making claims that he thought were just meritless. Um, so it's been a, it's been a really um, interesting, interesting process to watch this litigation. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Nate personally about the 2020 election. Joe? Well, so uh, interrupting this, this happy story is the fact that a substantial number of Americans, substantial percentage, uh, think the election was stolen. And, how do we understand that? And I'll just ask you, Nate and Pam, to, to, to lead so, us through your thinking on that. Before the election, about four months, five months before the election, I was talking with a, a uh, significant election official in one of the nation's largest cities. Uh, and he said to me, he goes, you know what my biggest fear is right now? That we might do everything perfectly and no one will believe us. And his fear basically came to pass, right? Which is that regardless of how well it was run, uh, because of the way it was portrayed um, by certainly the president, but others uh, as being a flawed election that was rigged and the like, that it didn't even make a difference how, how hard they worked. And it didn't make a difference in the public perception. Um, and look, that, that is not surprising that that was the eventual result, given that the allegations of fraud actually precede the election itself, right? So that 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 um, this narrative had already been seeded for many months before the election, both as respect to absentee ballots, but also to the election in general, um, where the uh, campaign had been threatened, saying that the Democrats were going to steal it. Um, and it's, you know, it's taken hold among 75% of Republican voters who say that the election was stolen in a recent uh, Pew poll or stolen or wasn't free and fair and the like. And frankly, look, we saw this uh, in Congress as well when they were voting on the, on the slates of electors that um, a substantial share of members of Congress at least are willing to feed that narrative and to raise questions about the, um, uh, the security of the vote. I mean, one of the things that I found so interesting and kind of striking about this was the fact that the Republicans down ballot did exceptionally well in this election. They 
you know, they picked up some seats in the House. They held a number of the seats in the Senate that had been thought to be vulnerable and like, and I just always wondered, how did people tell themselves the story of there was fraud, but it was only fraud uh, at the presidential level? And, and, and you saw this especially um, when they got to the House of Representatives, which we'll talk about more after the break, I'm sure. And uh, a number of recently seated Republican congressmen were arguing that the election in their state had been so fraudulent that you couldn't count, you, you couldn't rely on the results, but that's how they got elected. That's right. I mean, eight of the nine, I believe it's eight of the nine um, Republicans in the Pennsylvania uh, delegation basically voted to um, not allow the slate of electors from Pennsylvania to be counted, right? Uh, and so, and questioned essentially their own elections. Now, you know, one of the things that we see in polling on this is that people are pr quite confident that their own vote was counted regardless of party, but they just think that the system was such that um, that the, the voting was rigged and so that other people's votes were inaccurately counted. Um, and it, you know, it's just extremely troubling. You know, it doesn't. It just doesn't hold up. And there, there's that argument about the um, the fact that the the Republicans did well in in other uh, areas, but also, you know, the 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 level the allegations are so heterogeneous, right? They extend from Dominion voting machines being part of a conspiracy starting with Hugo Chavez to dead voters in Philadelphia absentee vote, you know, uh, voting. You know, even if you look at the take Philadelphia, which I've, I've spent the most time analyzing, Trump actually did better in Philadelphia in this election than he did four years ago. Right. People don't realize that um, the, the real story of, of where Trump lost was in the suburbs. Right. It's not in a lot of these urban centers. Uh, but but you can't you know, th there's no reasoning with those who are willing to believe the narrative that it was a stolen election. Yes. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Joe. This is simply. How do we understand how the narrative starts? We know it starts with the president and some of the president's men, so to speak, uh, but it's picked up by other officials. And since we think, and I think there's no way to sugarcoat it, we think it's simply a false narrative. Do those other officials know it's false? I mean, who knows, who knows the truth there? This is Stanford Legal, and we'll be back to answer that question with our guest, Nate Persley, on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Joe? Well, you know, right before we broke, Pam, I raised the question of how did this falsehood really get spread? We know where it started, but how did it get spread and who, know, who knew the truth? Are people, people spreading it that know that there was no problem or is it just being spread by people who are true believers? So what's happening in the election realm is not unique to the election realm. So the false narratives that we've seen that are related to voting have analogs in other areas, whether it's the COVID pandemic or uh, anything else uh, in politics over the last few years. And so why do some people believe these false narratives that, are, um, that then take hold? So the first is that there is a tribalism in people's belief about the electoral system that, that 
if you are on my team, well, then you will believe a particular narrative. And so um, if you if the president of the United States says that the election was rigged, you show fealty to the president of the United States by believing that the election was rigged. That explains a lot of the mass behavior, right? Because who knows, you know, if you're an average person, you're not exactly paying attention to the sort of entrails of the election infrastructure, right? As to whether they are, you know, it, it, it faithfully being uh, followed, you get your information from thought leaders, whether it's the president of the United States or your favorite media or social media site. Then there's the more diabolical explanation, which you are hinting at, which is that there are some who just are, are kind of hucksters for whom this is part of the marketing for their political brand, right? And so there are people who actually, I think, know that the election was done honestly, uh, but they see it in their personal interest to, um, to be hitched to that wagon that is uh, spreading the lies about voting. Um, and then there are those who, who, I mean, if you wanted to think about like foreign actors, what their incentives are, but it could apply to domestic actors also, that if you wanna undermine the legitimacy of the Biden presidency, one way to do that is to keep in the air the narrative that the election was illegitimate. This is one of the things that was so slippery about the illegitimacy is, you know, if you ask the public part of the process, who thinks they presumably think the election was illegitimate because either people voted who weren't supposed to vote or uh, in the more bizarre and conspiratorial ones, votes that were cast for Donald Trump were somehow switched and turned into votes that were cast for Joe Biden. And that's a very different kind of set of claims than the claims that were used, for example, on the floor of Congress when the electoral votes came to be counted. Those were not, with the exception of a couple of really quite crazed representatives in the House of Representatives. That wasn't the objection. The objections had to do with various odd technical features of the relationship between federal and state law. And so it's really, it's, it's very slippery, uh, I think, this question of what led people to lack confidence in the election. And of course, this all predates uh, what uh, what happened uh, last last week when the electoral votes were actually opened on January 6th in Congress. Nate, can you talk, as you've talked to us in the past about the role of social media. And I want to go from maybe those who knew and just are kind of diabolically playing along with the falsehood to how things spread on social media and what's, how social media has responded this time. So the you have to sort of turn back the clock, not just to next to last Wednesday and not just to November 3rd, but all the way back four years to the responses that the social media companies took in response to the 2016 election controversy, particularly the Russian intervention. And so there's a sort of suite of changes that they made dealing with political advertising, transparency, in some cases, as with Twitter, banning political ads. And then you had uh, a whole set of like tools in their arsenal that they would deploy against falsehoods that were um, on the platform, really starting in the spring. What was interesting, and this is kind of like me putting on my social scientist hat, it's, it's clear that some of the tools that they developed to deal with falsehoods with respect to the coronavirus were then deployed in the election realm that they had sort of um, you know, figured out that they would be, you know, whether, it's, whether it's labeling or, or altering the algorithm or labeling of things as false, 
that um, their experience with coronavirus then bled over into the um, into dealing with false claims during the election. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Nate Persley about the 2020 election. And I guess in this last uh, segment, we might want to turn to the extraordinary events uh, on Capitol Hill, because those also have had a huge social media aspect to them. They have, and we are seeing sort of unprecedented exercises of power by tech companies to deplatform the president of the United States, as well as as um, you know, sites that may be supporting him and the incitement. And so, you know, I don't think anyone can sort of like the situation we are in, where you have you know rich companies who are in the position of unilaterally deciding. Uh, you know, who is going to have access to their giant audiences. Of course, this is not a First Amendment problem. We should just put that to rest. These are private actors, so the First Amendment doesn't apply to them. But, um, you know, whether it's Facebook and Twitter deplatforming Trump, basically kicking him off the platform, as well as some other sites that supported him, or whether it's Apple and Google in their app stores deciding that Parler, the the sort of conservative version of Twitter, uh, will not be able to uh, be, be downloaded onto people's phones, or whether it's Amazon deciding that it's not going to allow its web services to um, host Parler or other similar organizations, or even credit card companies like Stripe that have now said they're not going to process uh, funds for the Trump campaign and its affiliates, right? You've had this massive effort on the part of the technology companies um, to dissociate themselves from the president and his supporters in the wake of their inciting of violence uh, in, the, in the Capitol. I mean, I, can I just ask you one question, Nate, which is certainly this is a huge change. And as you say, it's a change that raises a number of really interesting questions vis-a-vis -vis the kind of Wild West days of the internet and social media over the last 10, say five years, 10 years. But before that, you know, we had a world in which large media companies basically controlled people's access to information. I mean, you know, there was broadcast news and that was it. There was the local paper and that was it. So are we just simply returning to the world we used to have or is there something really different about this? Well, I think that it is quite different. I mean, first of all, when it came to broadcast, there was actual regulation, right, of the broadcast industry in, 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 in ways that we don't see with the social media companies. Um, and But, you know, suppose ABC, NBC, or CBS decided that they were not going to run anything, you know, any speeches by the president, that would be a pretty significant thing for, for them to do. Now, of, you are right in that those institutions exercised incredible power, um, but what makes social media unique is that it's social, right? So that there's an expectation that individuals can find a place online to uh, choose the information sources that they are going to, um, you know, listen to, and and that now the companies are, you know, taking a pretty hard line here. Now I don't disagree with the. Um, you know, necessarily the way that they've gone about this. The problem is that from a kind of democratic legitimacy perspective, you probably want to have, um, you know, some kind of check on these corporations um, because, you know, this power could be used um, in quite anti-democratic ways as well as to prevent, you know, incitement. Well, we've been talking with uh, Nate personally and Pam Carlin, really, 
about the extraordinary events of this last election. There's so much to talk, but every time we have you on, Nate, I feel like we end before we're, we're beginning it. Thank you, Nate. Thank you. But I want to thank you all for joining us here on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the Sirius XM app.